All right, so find in your Bible, whether it's a paper Bible or a Bible app, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, we'll get there. It'll be a little bit before we get there, but that's where we're going to be. Um, How many of you remember elementary science class? Anybody remember elementary science? One of the things that we learned in elementary science is that plants need three things to, be, to grow healthy and be fruitful. Three things. What, remember what they are? Sun, water, and soil. Sun, water, and soil. Good job. You guys get an A-. minus. Uh, <laughs> plants need three things, sun, water, and soil, to be healthy and fruitful and growing. And, uh, and if a plant is missing any one of those three key ingredients, it won't be healthy, it won't be fruitful, right? Christians are kind of the same way. We're in a series, we're talking about how to be a Christian, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, how do we follow Jesus together, and if we want to be spiritually healthy, growing, and fruitful disciples of Jesus, we also need three things. We need the Spirit, the Word, and the church. If you want to be a spiritually healthy, growing, and fruitful disciple of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, you have to have these three things, the Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God, or the Bible, and the people of God, the church. If you're missing any one of those ingredients, you will not be a spiritually healthy, growing, and fruitful disciple of Jesus. You won't be. A lot of people are like, well, I could pray, I can read the Bible, I don't really need to go to church. You won't be a spiritually healthy, growing, and fruitful disciple unless you have all three of these ingredients. It's important. They are essential and necessary. Just like plants need sun, water, and soil, Christians need the Spirit, the Word, and the church. And so last week we talked about the Spirit. How do you live a Spirit-filled life? And this week we're talking about the Word or the Bible. Um, And so here's a little statistic as we get started. According to a recent Pew Research study, 82% of American Christians say they only read the Bible on Sundays that they go to church. They don't read the Bible any other time except Sundays when they go to church, 82% of us. And 56% of American Christians report that they only attend church services once or twice a month at most. At most, right? Which means a significant number of them, it's way less than that. And what this means, since 82% only read the Bible on Sundays they go to church and 56% only attend church once or twice a month at most, what this means is the majority of American Christians only read the Bible a handful of times a year when they happen to be in church on a Sunday because there's not a hockey game or a soccer game or a volleyball game or the Packers game or the Bears game or the Chiefs game or the whatever game or the the weather's not right and I can't go out musky fishing today so I'll go to church instead, right? Whatever it might be, all these things that keep us out of church, we only read the Bible a handful of times a year. On a Sunday, we happen to be in church. I think it's no surprise then that our faith is anemic, And the church is really impotent in our society because to be spiritually healthy, growing, and fruitful disciples, we need the Spirit, the Word, and the church. And if we only read the Bible a few times a year, we're going to be spiritually anemic and our faith is going to be very weak. Uh, So as Christians, we are supposed to be people of the Word. 
As disciples of Jesus, our lives are supposed to be built on and defined by God's holy scripture, the Bible, right? Jesus himself said, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, when he was being tempted by Satan in the desert, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, the prophet Isaiah said it in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, Every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. As Christians, we are supposed to be people of the word, but we don't read the word. In fact, when I was doing some research this week for this sermon, I read an atheist's critique of Christianity. And here's what he wrote. I've only met a few Christians in my life that have even read the Bible. Most don't even know what it teaches. They put their faith in a book they've never read. It's the blind leading the blind. An atheist says Christians are the blind leading the blind because they put their faith in a book and they don't even know what the book says. Right? That's his critique. And as I was thinking about, well, how do we preach a, a sermon about the Bible, about the Word? There are lots of different ways that we could approach this topic. For example, we could ask the question, why should we believe that the Bible is God's Word? Big question today, right? How do we know that the Bible is God's Word? Why should we believe that? And we could preach a sermon about that. And we could talk about evidences like archaeological evidence. That there have been thousands, not just a few, thousands of archaeological digs and studies and findings that have confirmed over and over and over again the historical accuracy of the Bible. Thousands of archaeological digs, right? We could talk about literary evidence. The Bible was written over a period of 1,400 years by more than 40 different human authors in three different languages. And yet, it, is, it has a miraculous consistency and unity throughout the entire book from Genesis to Revelation. Now, you could take 10 people from Stoughton living at the same time period in the same town and have each of them independently write a story like this, and you would not get anything close to the, to the consistency and the accuracy that was produced over three times the time that the United States has been a country. Over 1,400 years, the Bible was written, and it is remarkably consistent and unified throughout. So we could talk about archaeological evidence. We could talk about literary evidence. We could talk about transformative evidence, how the truths that are written in the Bible have literally changed people's lives and transformed people. They've set addicts free. They've released people from depression. They have turned mar broken marriages around. They've done amazing things. The Bible has tremendous transformative evidence. And we could say, when you take all of these evidences, and these are just three, there's a whole lot more, when you take all of these evidences together, sure, the Bible is God's word. We can have faith in believing that. But I don't think that's really the sermon that we need to hear. So I was thinking about that. Well, what, what about this question? Hasn't the Bible done more harm than good in human history? Well, that's a big question that people are asking right now. Isn't the Bible sexist and racist and chauvinistic? Isn't the Bible terrible and doesn't it, hasn't it done more harm than good? And Christians are evil bigots and we should just ugh, get rid of them all, right? Well, we could preach a message about the Bible's contributions to human history. Contributions like an ethical and moral, moral, frame, moral framework. Ethical, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> ethical and moral framework. 
Just think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments and how profound those instructions are and how the Ten Commandments have served as the basis for the judicial system in many different countries. It's still the basis for our judicial, judicial system today. We don't reference the Ten Commandments, but the idea of you shall not steal, and it's against the law to steal, right? Think of that. The, the Bible made that ethical and moral framework as a contribution to human history. Think about positive social influence that the Bible has had. Where did the idea that slavery is bad come from in, in, in the history of the world? Where did the idea that slavery is bad come from? Because no civilization in the history of the world has ever thought that slavery is a bad idea except Christians who were reading what the Bible says about human beings made in the image of God and they said, well, gee, if the Bible says this, maybe slavery is bad. Maybe people shouldn't be treated differently because of the color of their skin. They're made in God's image too. Racism is bad. The very idea that racism is bad comes from the Bible. And yet people today are like, well, the Bible's the source of racism in the world. No, the Bible is the source of the idea that racism is evil. Because if it wasn't for the Bible, none of us would even think that racism is evil. Right? We could talk about contributions like that. Where did the idea that women should be treated equally with men come from? Not from any society in the history of civilization, except from Christians reading that men and women were both made in the image of God. Oh, well, if that's true, maybe women should be given equal rights. That's a Christian idea. That's a biblical idea. It comes from the Bible. The Bible's not sexist or chauvinistic. It is the source of the, the truth that women should be treated equally, right? We could talk about uh, other positive contributions like health care, orphan care, education and science who invented hospitals christians reading what the bible says about caring for the sick and the poor and that well we should invent hospitals some place where the sick can come and be taken care of instead of left in the street to die like trash christians invented hospitals christians invented orphanages to care for kids that had lost their parents christians invented universities Universities didn't exist until Christians said, we want to teach people to read and we want to teach people to understand the truth about God's creation and God's word. And so we create universities. And science, science comes from the Bible. Who invented the scientific method? The only civilization that invented the scientific method was Christians who were reading what the Bible says about how God created an orderly universe they said, well, if God created the universe, then we can study the universe in an orderly way. And they invented the scientific method to study the, the universe that God created. And now scientists use the scientific method to try to argue that there is no such thing as God and the Bible isn't true. But it comes from the Bible, right? We could talk about these positive contributions. And these are just three examples. There's a lot more. But I don't think that's the sermon we need to hear either. Uh, what about this question? What does a book written thousands of years ago have to do with today? That might be a good sermon, right? Is the Bible even relevant? Maybe we don't read it because we don't think it has any relevance today. Well, I could preach a sermon and we could talk about three relevant ideas from the Bible, like the golden rule. Matthew 7, 12, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus said it, right? We could talk about the value of love. Mark 12, 30, 31, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
boy, it would be a lot better in our society if we would love our neighbors as ourselves, right? That's a very relevant teaching. Or the importance of caring for the vulnerable. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure is this, caring for orphans and widows in their distress and keeping yourself unstained from the world, right? Caring for orphans and widows. Isn't it just as relevant to care for the vulnerable today as it was 2,000 years ago when James wrote those words? Absolutely it is. And these are only three examples. There are thousands more that show the relevancy of the Bible today. But I don't think that's the sermon for us either. As I was thinking about this and thinking about the Bible and why we don't read it, here's really the problem. It's not that we don't believe. Most of us in this room, most of us watching on the live stream, most of us believe the Bible is relevant. It has wisdom for us today. We know that the Bible is God's word for us and we know that it's important to read it. We believe that it would do us good if we read the Bible more and most of us wish that we read the Bible more. In fact, we, we have New Year's resolutions to read the Bible more, right? Because we want to or at least we want to want to. We know that the Bible is good and we should read it, but we don't. Because most of us approach the Bible the way we approach exercising and eating healthy. We know it's good, we know we should, but I'm going to walk past the carrot sticks and grab a couple of extra cookies, right? I, I know I should go to the gym and I know I should exercise, but uh, I just don't feel like it, right? That's how most of us approach the Bible. It's like a chore, it's a discipline, and if I have enough willpower to gut it out, then I'll read the Bible. And there are always a few people that, you know, they go to the gym five days a week and they walk past the cookies and grab two extra celery sticks and they look great when they walk across the room and they probably feel great, but then there's the rest of us and we're just like, hey, I need an extra cookie. You know, I had, my kid was up late last night. I need a cookie. Um, <laughs> most of us approach the Bible kind of like that. Like we know we should read it, but we just don't. We know it would be good for us, but we just don't read it. Why don't we read it? That's really the question. Why don't we read it? And the number one reason that people give on any survey that's ever been done about why don't people read the Bible more, the number one reason they give is this. I'm too busy. I've just been really busy. I know I should read it. I've just been really busy. Right? Pastor Eric Raymond, who uh, is the pastor of a church and also a contributor to the Gospel Coalition, says this. Busyness may be a reality, but it's not a reason. You might really be busy. That might be a reality. I'm busy. I've got five kids. Four of them are in school. <sighs> busy. Busyness might be a reality in your life, but it's not a reason. Many people who are too busy to read the Bible are up to date on the news. They spend time on social media. They watch movies. They know the stats from last week's football game. Too busy to read the Bible, right? Busyness is a reality, but it might not be a reason. Some of the busiest people that I've known in my life somehow still make time to read the Bible regularly. I don't know how they do it. They're so busy, but somehow they find time to do that. So if we're really honest, if we're really honest about why we don't read the Bible, we'd have to say this. It's not that we don't have time to read the Bible, but that we don't make time to read the Bible. Now, if we're really honest, it's not that we don't have time, it's that we don't make time. God convicted me of this this week. 
my practice, my habit has been for several years to get up early before the sun, before my kids, and to grab my Bible and a cup of coffee and a notebook and have some time with God in his word. And that's been really great. It's been a, a wonderful time. Uh, until about a month ago when Maycat, who turned one on Friday, decided that 5 a.m. is her time to get up. There goes my quiet time. And over the last month, it's been a challenge for me to find that quiet time with God in his word. And I was complaining about that this week, and I was telling God, you know, if it would just be so helpful if you would make her sleep an hour longer so that I could spend time with you because once they're up, I don't have time. And immediately the thought came right to my mind. You have the same time as everyone else. 24 hours in a day. Okay. All of us have the same time. It's not that we don't have time. It's that we don't make time. And if Maycat decides to get up at 5 a.m., I need to figure out how to make time for God somewhere else in my day. Because we all have the same time. 24 hours a day. So I'm not buying the I'm too busy line. I'm not giving that excuse anymore. That might be a reality, but it's not a reason. I think the real reason why we don't read the Bible more often, and again, we have to get really brutally honest, if we really want to get down to it, is that we haven't found that reading the Bible makes any difference in our lives. If we're really honest about it, I tried, I got up on January 1st and I started in Genesis and I was going to go all the way through the Bible in a year and I got into so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so and my eyes are crossing and I don't know how to pronounce those names and I'm thinking what in the world does a family tree from 3,000 years ago have to do with my life today and I quit. I tried, I tried reading the Bible, I just didn't understand it and it didn't make any difference in my life. I tried going to the gym. I went to the gym three days a week for two weeks in a row, and the only thing I felt was pain. I wasn't losing a waist size. I wasn't looking better with my shirt off. Nobody was like, oh, boy, Andy, you're, you've been working out, haven't you? Nope. All I did, I went to the gym. I gave it my, the good old college try, and it didn't do anything in my life, and so I'm not exercising. I tried reading the Bible. I, I did. I got into Leviticus even. Mm. That's it, right? So we've tried. We haven't found that the Bible makes any difference in our lives, so we don't make time for it. That, I think, is really at the heart of the problem with why we don't read the Bible. And so the question that I want us to consider this morning, after a 20-minute long introduction, <laughs> is this question. How can we read the Bible in a life-changing way? If the Bible is God's word, and if the Bible is necessary for us to live spiritually healthy and fruitful lives as disciples of Jesus, and if the reason we don't read it is because it doesn't make a difference in our lives, how can we read it so that it does? How can we read the Bible so that it actually makes a difference in our lives? And I only have one point. Here it is. Stop reading about God. Boy, that was quiet. What? Did my pastor just say, I better take a picture of that so I can post it on Facebook. Look what my pastor said. Stop reading about God and start reading with God. 
If you want to read the Bible in a way that makes a difference in your life, stop reading about God and start reading with God. You, don't want, to, you want to know one of the most famous and well-known uh, New Testament scholars in the world? Bart Ehrman. He's also an atheist. He knows more about God and more about the Bible than almost any Christian I've ever met in my life, including my own seminary professors. And he's an atheist. You want to know why? Because he reads the Bible about God, but he doesn't read the Bible with God. And it has zero impact in his life. If you will read the Bible with God and not just read the Bible about God, it will change your life. Stop coming to the Bible like it's some sort of school textbook full of all kinds of information about a God who lives hundreds of millions of light years away in a galaxy far, far away in a, in a long time ago, right? No, start reading the Bible with God and it will change your life. When I discovered this, it literally changed everything in my life. I was 19 years old, I was in college, I'd grown up in church, I did not like to read the Bible. It was boring, it was hard to understand, it didn't seem relevant to my life, I knew it was important, but I just didn't like to read it. And then one of my friends invited me to a Bible study in the dorm, and I went. And here's what we did, we sat in a circle, we read a passage of scripture, and we would talk about it. What does this show us about God? What does this show us about other people in the world around us, right? What, what does God want us to do? And we would talk about it, and then we would pray, and we would talk to God about what we were reading in the Bible, as if Jesus was sitting in the circle with us talking about the Scripture. We would just talk to him like he was right there. And it changed everything in my life. It wasn't long before the Bible just came alive and I fell in love with the beauty of truth in God's word. It captivated my heart. And I fell in love with the experience of God's presence as I opened the Bible to read it with him. I could sense his presence with me and I could not put my Bible down. I read it and I read it and I read it and I read it and then I decided to change my major and go to seminary and become a pastor and I'm still taking classes because I can't get enough of reading the Bible with God. It will change everything. If you want to read the Bible in a way that makes a difference, stop reading about God and start reading with him. Now how do you do that? Well, think about children. If you, if you ever had children, if you've not had any children, well, everybody in this room has been a child at some point in your life. So you have this experience. How do you read with children? You read, you stop and talk, you read, they ask questions or you ask questions, you talk about those questions, you read, you talk about it, you stop, right? That's how you read the Bible with God. You read it, you stop and you talk to God about it and you ask God questions. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. God, help me understand what that means. And you, you ask him these questions. Here's what it looks like for me, these simple steps. Read, meditate, pray, rest, do. I open up the Bible to a passage of Scripture and I read it. And I usually pick shorter passages because I want to read it three or four or five times. Read it and then meditate. Think about it. Reflect on it. Allow the, the things that are going on in my life to come up to the surface and interact with the scripture. And then I pray. I start to talk to God about it. What does that verse mean? Wow, Jesus, that was really amazing when you healed that woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. That's pretty awesome. What do you want me to do about this, God? What is this showing about me? What, what do you want me to know about myself from reading this? 
How can I apply this to my life? What do you want me to do today? I start talking to God about it, and then I rest in his presence. Now that my mind is focused on God and his word, I just sit there for a while in silence, and I just enjoy being in the presence of my God. And then I get up and I go and do whatever it is that came to my mind. It's that simple. It's reading the Bible with God, not just reading the Bible about God, and it changed my life, and I believe it will change your life. Um, Now, I could talk a lot about this and and whatever, but I want to let the Bible speak for itself, and I want us to practice doing it together. Um, So if you'll find Psalm 19, verse 7 is where we'll pick it up. We're going to go 7 through 11. You'll need a pen or a piece of paper and a piece of paper. Um, there's a pens and papers in the seat pockets somewhere near you, so grab a pen, grab a piece of paper. What we're going to do is read through this passage, and then we're going to practice reading with God. We're going to read through this passage together, and then we're going to sit with God and ask him a couple of questions, and I'll put them up on the screen after we read through it. Here's Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Would you speak to us now through your Holy Spirit as we read this together with you? And would you clarify in us who you are, who we are, and what we can do as your disciples? In Jesus' name, amen. There's a couple of questions up here. Next slide. I want you to sit for a few minutes with this passage, read through it again, and talk to God and ask him, what do you want me to know about you or about myself or about others? And then God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do today or this week? So just spend a few minutes with God and ask him these questions.